Production. Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, July 23rd, 2010, episode 174. Long time, huh? We're getting old, so we're getting old. <laughs> Comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, a Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's always great to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We also have the intrepid environmental Annie Koalecki at the controls. Good afternoon. Hello, Annie. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got the restoration attorney, Ed Cross, joining us today from out on the West Coast. Looking forward to this interview. We'll have our halftime with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. continue our interview with uh, Mr. Cross, and then we'll go to the roundup. We've been updating and adding that blog to the IAQ Radio website after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. I typically get it on there on Saturdays, Cliff. Cliff does a great job on the blog. you got to check it out. So before we start, though, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, j-o-n-d-o-n.com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, to join the show, you just call that 724-444-7444 number. Of course, you can also stream the show uh, live on the Internet. Our show ID is 1547. If you go to the TalkShoe site, you can also download the show by going to our website at iaqradio.com. Follow the link that says go to the show, or you can get automatic downloads from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have those ABIH, Certification Maintenance Points, IICRC, Continuing Education Credits, or ACAC Renewal Credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Our email addresses are also on the homepage. We love hearing from listeners. 
keeps us uh, keeps us going here every week. Absolutely, it's motivating. Yes, sir. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can just text in on your computer with your answer. Congratulations. To John Lebotair, MicroShield Environmental Services, for answering yet another Trivia question, by identifying Candida and Aspergillus as the two fungi responsible for the most prevalent fungal infections in hospitals. He's back. He's back. <laughs> now for the microband trivia question for Friday, July 23, 2010. Name the farmer's insurance policyholder who received a $32 million jury award in Travis County, Texas, over water leak claims in her home. Oh, that's an easy one. We're going to get that quick, I think, here. Okay. We'll Thank you, Cliff. All right. Let's see if, uh, first, let's unmute Mr. Cross, but we're going to do your intro, Ed. We just want to make sure you're on the line with us again here. Ed Cross is the restoration lawyer. He's the president of the law offices of Edward H. Cross and Associates. He represented over 50 restoration contractors in 12 states in collections, disputes, standard of care issues, mold claims, and also disputes with insurance carriers. He also drafts restoration contracts, work authorizations, waivers, disclaimers, warranties, and numerous other related documents. During his career, he has successfully resolved over 500 cases involving issues of construction, property damage, and indoor air quality. He's been handling legal matters related to water, sewage, and mold for 15 years, and before that he worked in the construction industry for more than five years. One of the unique things about uh, Mr. Cross is he's also gone out and earned some of the certifications in the indoor air quality industry, like the Certified Indoor Air Quality Professional from the Association of Energy Engineers and the Water Damage Restoration Technician from the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. He also worked on the IICRC's S500 and S520 standards, and he was a member of the Standards Committee and the Editing Committee. We are delighted to have Ed back to join us and discuss some current events in disaster restoration with a focus on legal issues. Okay, it's Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Eddie Van Halen. Van Halen for you. There you go. All righty. Good. We've got you back, Ed. Welcome. Okay, Ed. Thank you. 
Good. Well, thanks for joining us. And well, let, let's get into the interview. Uh, we want to find out what's going on on the left coast. Um, has mold frenzy settled down there? Uh, are there any new toxic concerns, if so, that take its place? Well, I think there has been some stabilization in the world of mold litigation, uh, but mold cases continue. <clears throat> some big uh, jury verdicts are continuing to come out. Um, you know, the big issue that drives all of this, in my opinion, is the media. You know, the media is the element that sparked this fire back years ago with the babies in Cleveland, got people concerned, got lawyers concerned, got physicians to start um, trying to find some solutions for these issues. And things kind of went haywire there for a while. And then uh, the insurance industry cracked down on this stuff. And um, it really did start to shift in terms of uh, becoming kind of a defense-favorable environment. Uh, but mold claims continue, and significant verdicts were reported in 2009. A Virginia jury awarded a family $4 million against a new home builder. They alleged the lumber was not properly dried and that the home had leaks. In this particular case, the court allowed the testimony of a physician whose testimony had actually been excluded in other cases regarding medical causation, and it turned out to be one of the largest amounts ever awarded in a single-family home case. However, most of the recent published mold cases are in the landlord-tenant context, and this is good news for the people uh, in the restoration business because these lawsuits are rarely against the restorers. Uh, last year, a Phoenix jury took only two hours to render a $3 million verdict to a woman who asserted mold-related illnesses, including cognitive impairment, as a result of a landlord's negligence. The court allowed physician testimony that the plaintiff had disabling cognitive and physical injuries. However, the general trend is probably toward defense verdicts with plaintiffs having to pay court costs to the defendants. Um, the biggest issue boils down to expert witness testimony. And a lot of courts, as we talked about, have been uh, excluding expert witness testimony on medical causation, basically on the basis of junk science. The California Court of Appeals recently published an opinion on a landlord-tenant case where a tenant sued for negligence, fraud, and other claims arising from exposure to mold in her apartment. In this case, which was called D, the judge refused to allow D's expert to testify that her illnesses, ranging from everything from an increased risk of cancer to fibromyalgia, were caused by her exposure to mold. The jury returned a defense verdict in that case, and the plaintiff appealed. The Court of Appeals affirmed the judgment uh, and the ruling by the trial court that the physician's uh, testimony should not be admitted. The Court of Appeals stated that the expert relied on unsupported assumptions and inadmissible blood and brain tests and sought to testify that the exposure to mycotoxins caused her symptoms without any evidence that she was actually exposed to mycotoxins. Even though a mycotoxin was found in the unit, that was two weeks after she moved out, and it was considered a minute amount. 
the court stated that nothing supported a causal connection between a minute amount of mycotoxin and any illness. You know, back when mold litigation began, the doctors were testifying that the presence of mycotoxins are basically presumed where you have these types of uh, mold present, and this is what gave rise to the mold litigation frenzy. Um, and that's not really uh, the case anymore. The physicians aren't able to do that, and that's what's caused a big shift of this. In terms of a new toxic concern, although nothing like the mold craze, Chinese drywall is definitely the sexy new kid on the legal block. The uh, issue is definitely a legitimate concern. Uh, fortunately, it seems to be fairly discreet and hopefully will be easy to contain. There are over 3,000 cases of toxic drywall reported in the U.S., whereas there were 100,000 or more mold cases. The drywall lawsuits have been consolidated into one massive federal case in New Orleans. And as you know, that drywall was imported from China after contractors couldn't obtain enough domestic drywall in a hot market and a sustained building boom. The Chinese drywall emits noxious fumes and it turns plumbing coils black, which never ceases to amaze me. Uh, many homeowners were forced to abandon their homes. In April of this year, a judge awarded seven Virginia families about $2.5 million in damages to pay for the removal of the drywall from their homes, but it's notable in that case that the defendant did not respond to the lawsuit. So they just came in and presented their evidence as damages, and the judge uh, made a determination there without hearing uh, any evidence or any defense from the other side. By virtue of the fact that they didn't respond, that indicates that defendant may not actually be collectible, but the court's ruling does have some relevance in determining the settlement value of other cases. Settlement negotiations are underway and on the other cases, and one manufacturer recently settled with Beezer Homes for $800,000 on a case involving 50 homes in Florida. HUD and the Consumer Product Safety Commission have issued recommendations to homeowners to remove the drywall from their homes and replace electrical components, gas service piping, and smoke alarms. Yeah, no problem. I'll get right on that. Hmm, interesting. And before we, uh, I may have a follow-up on the, on the drywall, but before we leave the mold litigation issue, I, I recall not long ago seeing um, news reports of a settlement from the Philadelphia Public Housing Authority, I believe it was. It was like $7.5 million for a girl that had an asthma, you know, episode and then ended up disabled, essentially. Was that reported accurately, or are you aware of that case? I, I haven't researched that particular one, but there are, uh, like I say, some big, uh, some big verdicts and some big settlements that are continuing to come up, but I think that um, the, uh, the odds are generally in favor of a defendant on a case where the plaintiff is alleging a mold-related illness, especially if it's something outside uh, the normal types of illnesses that are associated with these exposures like allergies and asthma. And um, I tell people if they're going to go beyond allergies and asthma, uh, they're in for a real fight.
What if you have a building owner you're working with? We have a lot of IEPs out here, indoor environmental professionals. Don't hit me with the acronym, please, Annie. Um, (laughs) You know, and they they assist building owners with water damage and mold problems and so on. And um, if you've got a building owner that maybe people are clamoring that uh, they're going to take some legal action, what, what do you recommend they do to best position themselves in case there is a lawsuit? Well, the most important thing is to properly document the file and to properly manage the relationship. Most of the problems that I've seen arise where somebody is unhappy due to a personality conflict or something that jeopardizes the trust. The companies that uh, have built uh, the highest level of trust uh, among their client base are the ones who have the fewest problems. Okay. Well, you know, I think we're talking about litigation and, you know, you recently defeated State Farm in court representing ideal restoration. Uh, Can you tell our listeners what was at issue in that case? What were the facts and what was your defense strategy? Well, this was the classic case of Monday morning quarterbacking, which has been a thorn in the side of this industry for many years where an adjuster or a competitor arrives late at a project and then criticizes the work or the prices being charged by second-guessing the judgment of the first responders who actually witnessed and inspected the actual damage firsthand. Uh, In this case, we attacked this epidemic of um, Monday morning quarterbacking head-on. This was a sewage loss on a residential home in Northern California, State Farm hired an unqualified investigator who performed an inspection about a month after the loss had already been remediated and dried. Uh, Without conducting a moisture survey and based purely on a belated visual observation, State Farm concluded that part of the demolition done by my client was unnecessary because there was no visible evidence of water damage. The contractor, my client, had positive moisture meter readings that she got with a hammer probe, Uh, but with no basis other than the visual inspection, State Farm essentially sloughed off the positive moisture meter readings and alleged that the hammer probe must have just been malfunctioning without any reason to believe that other than the visual inspection. The problem was State Farm didn't stop there. It then actually filed a lawsuit against the contractor for negligently demolishing building materials that should have been left in place, trying to recover the costs to uh, rebuild portions of the structure. My client pursued this case largely as a matter of principle, wanting to send a message that it would not tolerate Monday morning quarterbacking. It took advantage of this opportunity to cast light on all of this in court, which has been rarely, if ever, done. So Ideal refused to settle and took State Farm to trial on this. The court heard argument that State Farm's uh, inspection was inadequate. Um, I argued that the inspectors were underqualified and ill-equipped, and the conclusions were erroneous, and the court agreed and delivered a, a complete defense verdict. The, uh, the details of the case are on my website, edcross.com. People should keep in mind that although trial court judgments like this are not law, 
that's binding in other cases. Um, this is an example that can still be a helpful negotiating tool to explain what's likely to happen to people who try to slash prices based on guesswork or inspections that are conducted after key evidence is gone. And I think we have to keep reminding people that eyewitness testimony has higher value than speculation from a Monday morning quarterback. Did you want to follow up on that? Or no, no, you can't. Okay. Um, I, what advice do you give uh, restoration contractors about balancing the need for, you know, they've got to get in and work fast, but they don't want to destroy any, you know, important evidence, and they may need to document the loss and, and receive payment, et cetera. Um, what kind of ways do you recommend they cover themselves with respect to these issues? Well, with modern technology, we have lots of different ways of doing it. Um, you know, many different ways of, of documenting the conditions. One good thing is to actually keep a piece of uh, building material. If, for example, there may be a question if sewage reached a certain area and you're going to demolish uh, some material in that area, take, take a small piece as a sample, bag it up, archive it, and keep it. Um, lots of videography, lots of photography, uh, getting as many witnesses involved as possible. Um, if you've got uh, moisture meter readings, um, show them to the customer, show them to coworkers, uh, make phone calls and send emails to the adjuster, and uh, have a lot of communication, especially at the front end. When you uh, mentioned archiving, uh, there, 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 there's one thing I just wanted to add to that. Um, because one of the things I've found is it's oftentimes, and you, know, you can take all these pictures and you can take all the video, but what I've found works really, really well is a post-it note with what you're trying to show in the photograph. You know, if, if it's a leak, if it's a crack, if it's mold, uh, it's, it's a good idea to have in writing what you're, trying to, what you're trying to show. So when you go into court, the other side can't, you know, try to argue it away. That's an excellent idea. And... A lot of close-up photos, like of a piece of a, a wall, don't tell us much about where they were located. And there's some good software out there now that will allow you to uh, put captions uh, on the bottom of photos relatively easily. You don't have to be a computer, computer guru to accomplish that. And on larger losses, um, my more sophisticated clients are sometimes presenting entire packages with their invoices that have a brief summary of what uh, happened on the project, what was done, when it was done, why it was done, and photos that kind of walk through uh, the process to really tell the story. The key in documentation, as I said before, is to create a file that a third party could look back on later with no background knowledge about the project and be able to reconstruct the key events of the project, find out what was done, when it was done, and why it was done. And we've got a, a follow-up to that from a listener, and I, I have one myself. If, if you do use a digital camera, um, should you also have a sketch or a photo log to accompany the, the submittal that I guess you put in your file? It's, it's very helpful. Um, you know, if you have uh, a diagram of the building, uh, or a little floor plan sketch that you've made, and you can uh, note on there the, uh, the photograph number of where each of those were taken, um, that'll make my job a lot easier.
<laughs> now, as far as archiving these things, I work with a lot of um, restoration contractors and, and indoor air quality. Um, I call them indoor environmental contractors. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned taking a piece of the material and archiving that. I've, I've recommended that for years, but I'd like to know, are there any specific steps with respect to how they archive that? Should they, you know, sign something or have the, have someone uh, verify that that was on that project? Is there something further they should do or just take a piece and put it in the file? No, um, you should have just a little sheet that's like a chain of custody that shows the address where it was taken from, the date uh, that it was taken from, the location, and the person who took it. Okay. It great. doesn't have to be elaborate. We don't want to create a headache for people so they don't do it at all. Sure, sure. Don't scare well, them away, Joe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if you can help our listeners with something that is common and becoming more common, Ed. What should the restoration contractor do when the insurance adjuster wants to do more than adjust the claim, when he actually wants to call the shots, when he wants to in some way uh, influence the scope or act as project manager, and uh, how, how can the contractor handle this? Well, Cliff, I think the most important element of this is the human element. The clients I have who are the most uh, successful in dealing with the insurance industry are the ones who have the best people skills. And if the respect of the adjuster and the carrier is earned, the restorer's opinions and recommendations will carry weight. The restorer should be transparent and kind of take advantage of opportunities to prove that you're not trying to take advantage of anyone. We need to maintain good relations with the insurance industry, just do it without selling our souls. But the restore walks a tightrope between the duty to the owner and the need to get paid and to grow the business. Everybody has a unique perspective and different training and working together with an adjuster who may have some different education to share some ideas and collaborate could be a helpful process. Um, I would say be firm, but be polite. Now, on the legal end of that, an adjuster who steps into the role of project manager arguably has a legal duty to manage the project prudently, and the carrier may be liable for negligence if that duty is breached. As a practical matter, this theory is rarely pursued by owners, and many adjusters uh, believe they are entirely immune from liability for work practices and can slash the project with impunity. Ultimately, the customer is the boss and should be respected as such. The contract should clearly state that the contractor is being hired by the owner and not the carrier, and this should also be explained to the customer orally. If there's a difference of opinion, it may be helpful, uh, cost permitting, to call in an independent third party to try to moderate the discussion, like an expert who may be able to help uh, arrive at a settlement. If the adjuster refuses to pay to do the job properly, we need to make sure the owner understands that the owner is responsible for the amounts not covered by insurance and that the restorer intends to do the job properly. Don't be afraid to walk from a bad job, uh, but if you elect to continue the project, have the customer sign a refusal of recommendations and a release of liability. Most importantly, 
always perform at or above the standard of care, regardless of who is calling the shots. I think you kind of answered this text question that came in, Ed, but I just want to run it by you and see if you have anything to add. It's a common issue we hear from restoration contractors, and he's asking about contractors who, and he's saying they don't have any good documentations or real explanation as to why it takes so long for a building to dry, and if you want to comment on that, fine. But in general, I hear a lot of complaints about, you know, adjusters that want that building dry within a certain amount of time and it's going to take longer. How do you, other than what you just said here, recommend contractors handle that issue? Well, load it up with as much equipment as you can to get it dried as quickly as possible unless you have a methodology uh, that that is better than that. Um, I think that if uh, there really is no explanation about why it took so long to uh, dry a building, then the contractor is going to be liable for delays and potential business interruption there. But if somebody comes to me and they don't have any documents, that doesn't mean that they don't have a case or they don't have a defense. They have the testimony of the people who were there, and while memories are still fresh, they can create notes and a chronology and talk to the technicians who were there and kind of um, come up with uh, an outline to help uh, explain what was done. You know, I think going back to Hawaii 5.0, there's something I want to – I was driving around my car yesterday, and I was thinking about this, and I came up with this concept of passive drying. And I think in many situations, that's what I would describe these top-down drying processes that, that people are using. I mean, it's pretty passive because you can't get water to the wet materials. You're blocked by barriers of paint. You're blocked by barriers of carpet, and it just takes longer. And I think that it's, in many situations, not a good methodology and that buildings will dry faster when we use aggressive drying processes. When we put the dry air, when we put the air movement where the moisture is, you're going to get better, better results. So I think what can happen is, uh, you know, what we're trying to do, uh, I think on day one, the restoration contractor should be able to tell the client how long it's going to take to dry and and what it's going to cost. and Ed, any comment on that? I agree. You know, I okay. think you're right. And um, one of our guests has commented that psychrometrics and, and data logging rather than hearsay will prevail in drying techniques. And I think that's right on. Cool. All right. Great. Okay. Well, we're, we're close to halftime. But before we go there, let's get one more question in. Then we'll go to uh, our, our technical director. And I know he loves to talk legal issues. So we'll bring Dr. Wow on. But before we do, you mentioned a term standard of care and um, just wanted to get your your comments on what is a standard of care and, and why is it so important this is something that is a subject of a lot of confusion and people draw all sorts of different assumptions about what it means it's important because legal claims in this arena are primarily for negligence negligence is a breach of the standard of care so in order for a, a plaintiff to prevail in a case, they have to first establish in court what the standard of care is. So that leads to the question, what is the standard? Is it the state of the art? Is it the very latest technology that's available? Is it the state of the practice or the common um, uh, approach in your given community? Well, this is something that we discussed back during the original S520 meetings. 
and I proposed uh, a definition that was ultimately adopted, which is the standard of care is practices that are common among reasonably prudent members of the trade who are recognized as qualified and competent. There's some important elements in there that people need to keep in mind. Number one, it's a common practice. All right, just because something was uh, announced, you know, last night on the internet about a new gadget that's available, uh, doesn't mean that you need to be using it this morning. Okay, the standard of care is practices that are common, but they're good practices from people who are prudent and who are also recognized as being competent. Okay, well that's well said. That I I was I'm glad you clarified that for me too because um so that was a definition in the, that's in the um professional mold remediation standard from the IICRCS 520, but you had a great deal of input into it wasn't a definition that came out of a law book essentially. It's something that you worked on as a committee. Well, no, that was uh essentially a legal definition that was a blend of um, the approach taken by um, courts in a bunch of different states. Okay. And, um, you know, normally the definition is, uh, is reasonable care, but for more technical subjects like this, the courts have gone a little bit farther. And um, that's a working definition uh, that represents basically uh, what uh, most courts in the country uh, would recognize. It's close enough, but you need to check uh, exactly the, you know, the definition in, in your state where you're working. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. Well, you know, it's been said probably on this program and in the industry that sometimes the S and the S500 or S520 stands for suicide. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, was that in the uh, writing process, Cliff? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think, I, you know, some of these standards are so specific in terms of what's, you know, what's required uh, of the contractor that if you go through the standard and you, and you I mean, I, I think S500 and S520 are, to, are actually written uh, at too high of a level. And uh, I think there should be a minimum standard which, which uh, you know, the industry complies with and then exceeds rather than having this, what I would consider oftentimes an excessive standard. And, you know, I think oftentimes uh, you don't need to do all the different things that are in there, but because it's in the standard, people do it. And because people do it, it costs a whole lot more time and a whole lot more money than being practical and, you know, using common sense. But it's some of the stuff in there is pretty scary when you're trying to defend the contractor and the other side's trying to tell you that this is the industry standard and you know they're supposed to check the job seven times a day and, and right. some of the yeah, other great yeah, things yeah. that are in there. Is that a double-edged sword, a sword there, Ed? Well, this is something that I had a concern about back at the beginning when I first got involved um, with IICRC standards, and I believe we were working on the second edition of the water damage standard. And I was kind of struggling with this idea that we're trying to come up with specific recommendations for projects that could have any number of variables that affect them. And so I proposed some language that ultimately ended up in the front of the book that basically said that 
Um, these are uh, standards uh, that we've laid out, but um, reasonable care should be exercised in all cases, and in some instances, deviation from the standard uh, may be appropriate, and, and common sense should always prevail. All right. Well, let's let's. We've got to thank our sponsors Absolutely. quickly let's here at halftime. We're going to go to our halftime. Please hang on, Ed. Doctor sure. Wow, and and we'll bring you right back. Thanks, Ed. Okay. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. <laughs> Okay, do we have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, on the line? Yes, he is here, and I still like to listen to that one bar of Beethoven. <laughs> Good, Dieter. The, um, just curious, uh, I know you do a lot of expert witness testimony. Do you have a quick question or comment for well, us? I, have, I, I basically have two comments, and Ed touched on them. The one thing I'm doing... I'm doing this litigation stuff here now, what, for 40 years or something like that. And I have been in hundreds of depositions and once in a while in court and what have you. The one thing that always bothers me, and he touched on it, and I think it is an incredibly important concept, that is the standard of care. And I've been, I still have been or will be involved in asbestos cases. You know, all of a sudden somebody comes out and I said, well, the Romans and the, the Germ Germanics, in, in, yeah, 2,000 years ago, they knew that asbestos wasn't good for you. Therefore, you should have known about that. And yeah, somewhere that stops. And of course, you know, we can go 2,000 years ahead. There was an emergency standard by OSHA for asbestos, which I think at the time was 12 fibers per cc. Today, it's 0.1 fiber per cubic centimeter of air. Uh, so, yeah, which standard of care do we uh, are we applying? Can we apply? Should I have known everything that happened a hundred years ago in my business? I don't know. The other thing, which I think is even more important, 
and I, it's it's an axiom. It's a it's a concept that was developed 60 years, about 500 years ago, and uh, reiterated 60 years ago, and that is the dose response concept. And it is being lost, and it is bothersome for lawyers to hear that, yeah, I was exposed to carbon monoxide. Well, if you don't tell me how much it was, I don't know what the heck is happening. You can expose me. I volunteer for it. You can volunteer, I volunteer for it. You can expose me for the rest of my life to one part per million of carbon monoxide, and absolutely nothing is going to happen to me. Was I exposed to carbon monoxide? Yes. I am very at the very bottom of the dose-response curve where there is virtually no response, none, zero. Yeah, you know, and everybody else wants to go to the other side, you know, where you are counting dead bodies. And I think that should be a part of a testimony. It should be part of something about the jury. Uh, it should be aware that, you know, just telling me that I was exposed to mycotoxins, that I was exposed to mold, that I was exposed to carbon monoxide, that I was exposed to a solvent. To me, it is absolutely meaningless. And I shut up over there, but those are two incredibly important and scientifically based concepts that I think should be in every case and should be considered by everybody. I can breathe now. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Wow. We appreciate, as always, you joining us. We'll bring you back for the roundup. Okay, let's bring Ed back on here. Okay, Ed, any comments on our halftime? A couple of uh, quick comments. I think those were some excellent points in response to his question, should he have known about what was happening thousands of years ago? Uh, you know, it depends if that's what is the reasonable degree of care in that particular uh, practice area. You know, we hear so much about what's in the book of Leviticus from the the Old Testament about removal of what they thought was uh, mold. You know, if if it's a reasonable um, uh, expectation that your education is going to include that and it's relevant to what's happening today, then yes, you should be familiar with it. To do the work or to testify about it, do you need to know every single event in history that has ever happened? No, absolutely not. As to the dose-response question, that has been the linchpin that has led to the downfall of mold litigation. Once that question, once that issue actually got clarified, um, it, it really pulled the rug out from under a lot of these plaintiffs, especially as to the toxic illness claims, which were the ones that seemed to have uh, so much sex appeal. Cliff? Well, I guess speaking of sex appeal, um, what I don't understand is that with all we know about soot and fire-related particulate, why uh, there isn't more litigation over it and, and more concern about it? You know, could you contact or comment on that, Ed? Well, again, I think the media is a big driver for this. Um, You know, it seems to me as uh, just a matter of basic uh, common sense 
that there is some dangerous and uh, nasty stuff uh, that people are going to get exposed to after a fire. But we don't hear, at least I don't hear, um, reports on the news about um, people, you know, going to the hospital or babies dying or, or this type of thing um, regarding some negligence that led to, you know, um, a soot exposure and a serious medical problem. If the media gets excited about it, uh, people are going to take note on it. And the media is a very, very powerful force in all of this. I mean, before we leave the standard of care issue, um, Clifford put together a question I'd like to ask. If a standard of care is published, um, does that automatically make it a legal standard of care? No, that's an important uh, distinction, and I'm glad you guys asked that question. It's actually up to the courts to decide on a case-by-case basis what constitutes uh, the standard of care regarding a particular practice. If the practice is, like I said, common among members of the trade who are reasonably prudent and recognized as qualified and competent, then yeah, the court will say this is the standard of care. If it's published in a book uh, that was the result of extensive meetings and committee debates from people from different uh, walks of life and different parts of the uh, industry, and it looks like there was a reasonable attempt to make it a consensus document, that's going to carry an awful lot of weight. I think that uh, you need to look to the process of the creation of the standard. Was it four guys you know, sitting in, a, in an office uh, somewhere in Omaha, or was this more of a broad-based kind of um, kind of community effort that took place. And of course, an ANSI accreditation on a standard will give it great weight. Okay, American National Standards Institute, correct? Uh, correct. I believe we've got to watch our acronyms here, Ed. They'll get us. <laughs> the acronym police, they're out there. Are there speaking of standards, um, are you can you tell us about any new ones that are in the works that um you're particularly interested in or um that are you think our listeners should be aware of? Yes, there are lots that are in the works right now. If people go on to the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization website, IESO you'll see all sorts of different uh, standards and it reports on the status of those. Some of them uh, are in the review process, some of them uh, are in the early development process. Uh, speaking of fire, um, RIA uh, is currently in the development process with IESO on a fire standard and this is a very important document. Uh, the status of that, RIA is currently following up with the volunteers to ensure the appropriate documentation has been completed and received by the RIA office. A committee will be drafting an outline of the standard this fall, which will be reviewed and further refined by the standard development volunteers in early 2011. RIA and IESO has a standard for evaluation of fire-related particulates in HVAC systems, this is currently out for public review, they call it the soot standard. The purpose of that is to evaluate whether or not fire-related residue has been deposited on HVAC interior surfaces. 
if any of the listeners want to become a reviewer, they can go on to IESO.org. The deadline is August 30th. We recently settled a case on behalf of a general contractor where an owner of a high-rise was refusing to pay several hundred thousand dollars for duct cleaning uh, after a fire. And there was considerable debate about proper sampling methods uh, for soot and fire residue inside ducts, and even the definition of clean. Uh, we negotiated a modest discount with the owner and were able to uh, get the contractor paid on that. It was a good result because we were able to negotiate a substantial discount from our subcontractor who did the work and were able to settle the case without having to spend any money to file a lawsuit. But if there had been uh, a published standard out there, it would have made it a lot easier because uh, everybody was kind of wondering, you know, how are we supposed to sample for this? And what, uh, what criteria are we looking for? You know, with, with mold, we had the, the red bioaerosols book a long time ago, which gave some general guidelines for interpreting sampling data, but uh, we don't so much have that for soot. Uh, IESO is also in development of a mold assessment standard. This is a very difficult and esoteric subject, but it could be groundbreaking, and I think it could uh, really help to reduce uh, a lot of expense, a lot of wasted money uh, on, on mold claims. One of my uh, pet peeves has been this kind of sledgehammer approach where uh, contractors use containment on every single mold project no matter what, even if it's tiny. And that's partly you know, a risk management strategy, but a lot of times, like you say, Cliff, I just think it's, it's overkill. Um, there's also a standard under development for moisture and mold inspections in educational facilities. Uh, that process was started back in 07, and it's expected to be finished this fall. So um, keep an eye on the IESO news, and uh, we should see some, uh, some important documents coming out of there. Uh, Ed, I think indoor environmental uh, professionals and restoration contractors, uh, you know, aspire to be expert witnesses uh, in litigation cases. What do's and don'ts uh, can you give them? Well, becoming an expert witness is not quite as easy as uh, people might think. It's something that's primarily reserved for industry veterans. I don't hire experts unless they have gray hair. Uh, no hair is better. <laughs> but, you know, the expert every lawyer kind of envisions as the perfect expert has the persona of like a, a wise and fair grandpa type. And sometimes I get these, these 32-year-old um, go-getters who call me up and they've had, a, you know, a drawing company for, for five years and they want to become an expert witness and I tell them to go do some more work. But... Um, only a few people get the opportunity to do that work, so popularity in the industry is a huge part of it. And a reputation can be developed um, with um, you know, publishing articles and making public presentations uh, to build up the resume and, and the reputation. And if you can build up a reputation of credibility and fairness and avoid extreme uh, positions, uh, you can do quite well as an expert witness. 
Ed, I'm curious about, uh, we've talked about standards a little bit here, quite a bit. Uh, what about legislation? Uh, any uh, new legislation our listeners should be aware of? Well, everybody knows, uh, or I'm sure a lot of your, uh, your listeners know about the, uh, the big lead legislation. That's the, um, the big one that hit this year. Um, the, the history of that is interesting because it was 18 years ago when Congress passed legislation directing the EPA to propose a lead paint regulation. And we're just now getting a rule enacted. And then as soon as it was enacted, a few weeks later, an amendment came out. And so it's been a source of frustration for some people trying to figure out uh, what the EPA wants and what we're supposed to be doing. The, the basic part of the rule, as many people know, uh, requires accreditation, training, certification, and record-keeping requirements, as well as work practice standards for pre-1978 housing and child-occupied facilities. And it required distribution of the EPA's voluminous lead brochure. Um, soon after, um, several petitions got filed in court challenging the rule, um, including a provision in there that uh, allowed people to opt out if they were able to show uh, that there weren't any children involved. And in April of this year, uh, the rule took effect and many people had spent a bunch of money printing copies of the brochure, and by the time the rule came into full effect, the EPA issued a new brochure. So now we've got to print a new set of those. Uh, that can be downloaded at edcross.com along with the full text of the rule if anybody wants to see it. In June of this year, in response to a flood of applications for certifications and complaints about a slow response from the EPA and a shortage of training, they actually got accused of a failure to properly plan for this 18 years after Congress told them to do it. EPA denied that they failed to properly plan for it, but did announce that they would delay enforcement of certain elements of it. That would be that a firm uh, needs to be certified. That's been delayed until October 1st. And the worker certification requirement uh, has been delayed until September 30th, provided the worker is enrolled in an accredited uh, training course. The training has to be completed by December 31st of this year. But the delayed enforcement relates only to certification and not work practices and an enforcement action can be brought against anyone certified or not for violating the work practice rules. So people need to get trained and certified as quickly as possible. And then this month, just a couple of weeks ago, a new rule took effect that eliminates the opt-out provision, um, which said, like I mentioned, that you would be exempt from the workplace requirements where you certified that children and pregnant women were not present. Um, the, uh, the EPA estimated that eliminating the opt-out provision could increase the number of renovators that need to be certified by 50%. And um, this removal of the opt-out provision increases the cost for restorers because they have to follow the training, certification, and work practices required by the rules for projects that were previously eligible for opting out. 
And so a number of building associations have filed a lawsuit challenging the removal of the opt-out provision. And they make the point that the opt-out provision under the original rule was not available on projects where children or pregnant women were present. So eliminating it creates no additional protection, just additional cost and expense. Um, the good news is this month EPA has issued a small business compliance guide which uh, summarizes the requirements of the rule and basically tells you how to do that, and that can be downloaded on my website. All right. Well, thank you, Ed. Let's go to our roundup here, guys. What do you think? Cliff, we're going we're gonna to go once around the yeah, table. Just hang on, Ed. Hopefully we won't sure. go over on you, Ed. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, go high. Cut him out, hide him in, hide him in, hit him out, cut him out, ride him in, Okay, let's go around one more time. We'll start with Cliff, and then we'll see if uh, Dr. Wow has a quick uh, final comment here, and then I'll finish up. No problem. Okay, Ed, um, as far as restoration contractors go, what are the biggest and most costly mistakes that they make, and can you give them any suggestions on how to prevent them? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one um, probably is uh, the failure to document uh, the projects properly in all the different ways uh, that we've talked about before. Um, failing to get uh, change orders signed, uh, failing to really nail down exactly what the price for the project is going to be and make sure there's a meeting of the minds on that. And for those who are pursuing mechanics liens, we see a lot of errors made in the, uh, the filing of these uh, liens in an untimely manner, as well as uh, improperly filling out the forms and um, you know, waiting too long to pursue that. So everybody should develop a calendaring system to help them uh, stay on top of that and just try to maintain the best possible client relations. Okay, let's go to Dr. Wow. Hello, Dr. Wow. Any final comments or questions? Yeah, sure. I would like to thank Ed for uh, advertising me. Uh, I have gray, I, I'm not bald, but I have a lot of gray hair. It's salt and pepper, more salt than pepper. <laughs> does, does tall and uh, German accent help, Ed? And, uh, Absolutely. And a German accent uh, helps once in a while. People Absolutely. associate that one with a BMW or a Mercedes, and or for that matter, a Porsche, which I like. Right. Anyway, no, I, I think... I, I, I'm, I'm glad that I listened to, yeah, I mean, after all, we are talking about money over here. This is litigation. Um, this, is, this, this has an impact on society and you and everybody else. And I think it's good that we have on the show once in a while you know, talks about the implications of suing somebody or losing a lawsuit or winning a lawsuit and I think, I think that, is, that is a good exercise. And as I've said many times before, every time I listen, I learn something. <laughs> well, great. Thank you, Dean. We appreciate that comment a great deal. Uh, Ed, did you want to add to anything to that? 
Yeah, um, I think everybody needs to keep an eye on the EPA website for more changes in the lead rules. Uh, RIA has an excellent monthly e-newsletter called Newsbreak, which is a great source of information. I encourage all my clients to become active members of RIA and IAQA. On November 17th, I'm going to be putting on a webinar where I'll be sharing a formula I've developed on how to decide whether to pursue a legal claim, how to assess the economic and other risks, and know when it's time to cut your losses and walk away or go to battle. And um, we are excited about a new website we have coming up soon, restorationlawyer.com. It's going to be the only site of its kind on the web that is entirely dedicated to legal issues that affect the restoration and environmental consulting industries. And at the end of the day, please remember Ed's three rules for staying out of legal trouble. Document, okay. document, document. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. We really appreciate you joining us uh, again on IAQ Radio. It's been too long. We'll have to get you back sooner the next time. Uh, I hope so. That would be wonderful. You guys are doing a great job. And congratulations on 174 episodes. Well, thank, thank you, you, sir. All right. Before we go, I want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man. Oh, it was great. And it was fun today. Cliff, great time. Environmental Annie, the intrepid Environmental Annie. Thanks for handling the controls there. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Well, we had a, a bunch of people on live today. Thanks for joining us again this week. We'll see you next Friday for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.